0: This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by the Curiosity Box by Vsauce. They ship out a mystery box once a quarter that's full of awesome, geeky science toys and gear, and proceeds go to benefit Alzheimer's research. Visit curiositybox.com slash probably science to place your order, and you'll get a free Vsauce beanie. and welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood, and right right over there to my left, that's, that's Matt Kirshen.
1: Hey, what are the chances? <laughs> what are you doing? It's going to be millions to one. Who we'll lets you win? I mean, if you think about, like, just cumulatively, because the chance of us being together on one podcast is relatively, like, not that unusual.
0: But being but together on done, this
1: podcast. Done, yeah, and also, times by the number of podcasts we've done, like, we we're... We're into the 200s now.
0: Yeah, you're getting into some... Is this combinatorics? What, what yeah. branch of probability is this? Is that
1: <laughs> as, long as, as long as each of these podcast events is independent, right. then the chance is almost infinitesimal that we'd have been not together on so many.
0: Amazing. Uh, God, our listeners are so lucky yeah. They get to be a witness to this prob- probabilistic
1: marvel. It's the most statistical- unlikely thing. <laughs>
2: And the chances that I was going to be on this oh my podcast God. were 100%, <laughs> yeah. because you asked me specifically for this date.
0: That, of course, <laughs> is the voice of Grant Lyon, who I thought had been on before in the course of our four and a half years, and I guess no. I'm glad yeah. to finally have you.
2: You've been avoiding me for oh years, God. and it was <sighs> awkward, uh, but I'm happy to be here now. We're so very happy thanks, to have you. Thanks Are- for remedying that situation. Yes, at yeah. least we could do.
1: <laughs> very funny comedian, but also we've recently discovered previous scientist. Yes. One of the rare comedy a lot of, guests with a science yeah, background. Yeah, I
2: feel like a lot of people don't actually know that about me. It's like a separate life, you know what I mean? So uh, let's, let's get into it. Ooh, that? let's get into it. Well, um, I, I was an environmental science major in college. I actually worked for... A professor. My first job in college was working for a professor, and by the time I was at the end of college, I was the head undergraduate researcher, and I had other undergraduates working under me. Wow. Uh, my first job after college was working in a water quality analysis lab. And then uh, I worked for the Elkhorn Slough Foundation up there and stuff. So, yeah, I've I've done a bunch of What is the Elkhorn Slough Foundation? Uh, So, you know, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Sure, uh,
0: NOAA. Yeah,
2: NOAA. They have a system of 27 reserves, like... uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, um, slough and estuary so do you know what a slough the, is i've
0: heard is that spelled so, with o-u-g-h yes is that, okay.
2: s-l-o-u-g-h a slough is a type of estuary so and an estuary, estuary basically means you know the mixing of salt and fresh water an ecosystem where salt and fresh water okay meets a slough is a specific type of estuary where it's almost more of a meandering river that Sort of comes through a delta and the fresh and salt water mix through this river, but it's not quite as delta-ish uh, okay. as uh, some other estuaries would be, which is why it's specifically called a slough. And sloughs have bigger tidal uh, gains in them and stuff like that. So
0: right the, the the ratio of salt and fresh changes a lot over the course yes, of the. Yes, it does. Okay.
2: It cha- changes over the day and that sort of stuff. So, so what were you doing yeah. for them? Oh, uh, uh, for them, I was doing. uh I worked for uh, a program called the Coastal Training Program, and the whole idea was bringing scientists together uh, with policymakers, because all these policymakers, people that work for, like, Department of Fish and Game or Fish and Wildlife Service maybe actually don't do the science themselves. So my job is to, like, figure out who's actually doing the actual science and put them in the same room with the policymakers to sort of train them to make better decisions. Cool. You know, do it's you like...
0: Have to do, like improv icebreaker exercises.
2: <laughs> <like>. I wish, man. <laughs> Everybody go around and say your name and your favorite flavor of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Zip. Z Zip. Zip. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, so yeah, so we like Basically, I didn't know about the actual science. I just had to know enough to bullshit a conversation with these, like, leading scientists in their field, which is pretty intimidating. I'm like, hey, um, I've read a few articles on uh, wildlife corridors, and I know you've spent uh, 40 years uh, working on that, and now can I get you to talk about this, this, and that? And they're like, well, I'd like to talk about this, and I'm like,
0: well, actually, I think in this region we're pretty much,
2: we're pretty interested in that, actually, not this, uh, you know. But you must so. know your
0: shit if you were leading that whole team as an undergrad. Uh,
2: yeah, so I mean, it was uh, the best story I can tell you, man. Is so my whole as an undergraduate, um, the professor I worked for was doing most mostly restoration ecology mm-hmm. and a lot of her research focused on the effects of cattle grazing on native uh, perennial and annual grasses and flowers mm-hmm. so i was actually you know as with any of these most of those uh, professors and lead scientists don't actually do the research themselves they have a, right, you right. know a group of underlings and and that sort of stuff who is actually maybe out in the field doing the work and then they're the ones analyzing the data and right. finding trends and all that sort of stuff so um one of the um experiments that she'd had going for a lot of, a lot of years was we had three different plots uh mm-hmm. in cattle grazing land and they would make these exclo- exclosures
0: Exclusion. Uh,
2: yes so basically a a plot of land in the middle of a grazed field where the cattle can't get in. So instead Opposite of an, of an, in, an enclosure, yes, okay. It, instead of an enclosure, it's an exclosure keeping the cattle out. Okay. And then I would have to go out to these fields, and we had plots. So each uh, plot of land had 36 subplots, and in those 36 subplots, I had to uh, keep up a varying... Grazing regime. So, you okay, know, so sometimes like, you'd let sometimes a few I would into cut... the
0: exclusion, or in. No. Oh. So
2: I would do like weed whacking and raking and stuff like that to try to simulate cattle grazing down. Okay. So, like, some plots I would. Weed whack once a month. Some plots I would weed whack every other month. Some plots I would never weed whack. Some plots I would do that. Mm-hmm. And so,
1: and, and would you? Would you also just to really simulate the cow thing? Actually, chew up some of the grass yeah, and spit yeah, it out.
2: Exactly. No, but one of the fun things that we, I had to do was I had these boots. With actual cow hoops (laughs) screwed into the bottom of the boots. And I used to have to run around and stomp Uh, on the ground. Since
0: you were like a pretty high ranking person in the project, did you get to be the front half of the cow at least? Yes. Okay. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) I was
2: the head, not the ass. Uh, (laughs) But so I'm like stomping around in these fields with like cow hoop boots uh, and that sort of stuff. Uh, And here's a fun story. So we um, We had these three different plots, and um, for whatever reason i've I, you know this was my only real interaction with cattle when mm-hmm. I was doing this sort of stuff and For whatever reason, the three different plots had three different personalities of cattle, completely different personalities of cattle. This one plot, uh, all the cattle in the field were really skittish, so they would see me coming from you know a mile away and they'd be running to opposite ends and i wouldn't even see them yeah on one plot the cows were so friendly they were annoying because i'd be like walking out to this exclusion, and they're like licking my hands and like trying to like, like, nice like rub up against me and that sort of stuff and we would have a couple plots outside of the exclusion just to like see like okay what's happening out here as a, a control to see what yeah. the cattle are actually doing and i'd be trying to like count different you know native grasses in that and cows are like licking the back of my neck and stuff like that as i'm like trying to work
0: is that cute or gross because those are giant Um, tongues yeah
2: it was pretty annoying at the time where i'm like i'm trying to focus here guys like i get it i appreciate that you're happy that i'm here but i'm trying to focus but one of the places the cattle were such assholes like complete assholes and this was a a plot that i had to walk i had to hike like a mile out to the plot so Uh i was like walking and jumping over multiple fences and walking through multiple fields to get to this plot a mile away don't respect that no they're for whatever reason they just if i walk through the middle of them they would get real angry at me and i actually it's funny to talk about now but at the time it was legit scary yeah so
0: so one time (laughs) they're they're huge more of them so
2: i'm like i like the 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 boy ones are fighting oh that's what i mean so so i found out that these were like yearlings so they're like you know way more assholes because they're like teenagers (laughs) uh and so at the end of the day i'm out there working for 12 hours and it's dusk and i'm walking back at like 7 p.m and you imagine so i've got a weed whacker in one hand, a gas can in the other hand, a backpack on my back, a rake slung across my front. like, And I'm really hiking, and I like all these cattle are sitting at this one edge of the fence. And it's like a mile extra if I don't jump that fence and walk through them. So I'm like, man, fuck. Like, I'm just going to risk it. I'm just going to walk through them, even though they're jerks about it. Uh, and they were real not happy. They started, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, that they started tramp, stampeding off in, and they would come back and they would circle me and charge me from different angles. <laughs> and so now I'm, I'm, I'm standing there swinging 360 degrees with the weed whacker, yelling at the top of my lungs, <gasps> hitting cows in the head with the <laughs> weed whacker as they charge me and like warding them off. And then the, and then every once in a while they stampede off and they run, and I run, I run as fast That's, as I can yeah, yeah, yeah. until they surround me again and keep charging me again, and then I have to fight them off, and then they stampede away, and I run a little bit more, and it happened probably five or six times <laughs> oh of me God. getting through this field of like, and I'm like, man, if one of these guys actually hits me and knocks me down, like I'm, I could be dead.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. There's
2: 20 of these guys. If they're all trampling me, they're what what, a thousand pounds, more than a thousand pounds each. Yeah. So I'm like legitimately like yelling and like so afraid, but just like I gotta fight these guys off. Like, yeah, yeah. Death by
0: cows and death by bull. That's like okay, but death (laughs) death by cow. No one's like, oh man. Yeah,
2: He doesn't get brownie points for that. No, yeah, that's. So,
0: But it was worth not walking a mile. is yeah, how much you that's, hate walking. That's, yeah, yeah. Like,
2: at that point of the day, well, they were like really long days of physical labor. Yeah. You know? Well, I would get real weird out there. I'd be out in these plots like by myself. Nobody would around. I'd take off all my clothes and be sick, screaming Pearl Jam at the top of my lungs yeah. as I'm working out there <laughs> naked in the middle of nowhere field. <laughs> yeah. What were the
0: findings? Did you guys find anything interesting? Yeah.
2: Actually, they did find uh, stuff interesting. So... I actually found that because cattle were introduced into the California ecosystem so long ago, Mm -hmm. you know, basically as soon as Spanish settlers got here and stuff, uh, that now the grassland ecosystem depends on cattle grazing for diversity. Without diversity, uh, exotics and invasives basically just take over. So we need some level of cattle grazing to sort of give annual forbs and... And other types of uh, native grass as a chance to exist, but you have to be very vigilant to not overgraze, because right. overgrazing is very bad. So actually, you know, sort of the recommendation for rangeland grazing is like, yes, graze, but you have to have a rotation system in place to not overgrave certain fields and that sort of stuff. Okay. Which, actually, a lot of, like, ranchers were very happy about our findings, because I think for so long, environmentalists are like, ranchers are bad sort of stuff. And it's like, well, no, 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 the actual science is, they help on a certain level. We, they just have to be managed, right, basically. Right.
1: right, and that's just because the ecosystem has, like, a new equilibrium has formed over the last... Yes. It'll last over three hundred years. years. Yeah. So now yeah, now because, they are essential. Because
0: if
2: these invasives didn't were never introduced, then we wouldn't be having this problem. Is but, it because
0: the cows prefer to eat the invasives over the natives? Yes. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, and the a lot of the invasives are a lot more aggressive growers. Yeah. Especially because grasslands are, you know, somewhat drought um ecosystems. I mean they, they mm-hmm. need some level of water, but the they're not, to be arid. yeah. They're relatively arid compared to a lot of other stuff. So I think these these uh, invasives are just really aggressive growers. When like when any amount of rain comes, yeah. they really shoot up and grow quickly and that sort of stuff.
0: How did those get over here? Do oh you know? man,
2: just and anybody at the time that what I mean ships. You know, we have ships coming from. Asia and Europe and stuff like that in the, in the 1700s. When mm-hmm. no one Spanish had any missions. concept to. Yeah, I mean, rats, you know, all these, that's how rats got here, was all these ships and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. Oh, so rats they,
0: aren't native to this continent?
2: No. Oh. Uh, yeah, no, Wait they, yeah. Dave Wade actually has a real funny bit. Uh, where he says uh, he was explaining that like why there's so many rats in New York City to a girl uh-huh. and she was like how'd they get here and he was like oh they came over on ships and she was like rats have their own ships
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> so Dave Waite <laughs> yes. awesome.
0: yeah, it yeah. reminds me of like it's like the Salton Sea is drying up and then people are like well fuck it it was an accident let it dry up but like well no it was an accident long enough ago that it's formed its own yeah, yeah. thing now you'll be killing all these species if you let it dry up totally
2: and- Oh, yeah, uh, right. and that's, I mean, there's just any anything we brought over. I mean, there's not a lot. I mean, horses aren't native to here. Cattle aren't native to here. Yeah. Buffalo's native, and we, we killed that's them. That's the only, yeah. yeah. You know, that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. By the way, have you seen um, this Netflix documentary called Cowspiracy or heard about it? No. Oh,
1: okay. This will be at least spent the fourth too episode much time. No. no, I don't think
0: it's no. Uh, I was, I was give me a
2: give me a, a small recap. It's
0: just like saying that uh cows are the real it's like any Netflix documentary like guess what this is the actual cause of every problem in the yeah, world. Yeah. It's like specifically about like the greenhouse gases. Well,
2: smoke. yeah, I mean the, they they are and the animal production industry as a whole is the number one emitter of greenhouse gases. So like, it's like they,
0: specific kinds of. I mean, it's not all greenhouse gases, right? It's like
2: it's methane. Yeah, it's more uh, methane than predominantly.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. So
0: anyway, yeah. I, I'm not gonna. So I have this. a long
1: history of of science. Yeah, <laughs> that that by the way links in quite nicely to a story listener Susan St Martin sent in because there's uh another contribution to greenhouse gases or to climate change, rather, at least. Uh, reservoirs that provide tap water um hydropower dams are generally thought to be a clean source of energy by moving water through turbines dams generate large amounts of electricity almost continuously and without causing air pollution so it's partly for these reasons that more than 3,700 hydroelectric dams are currently proposed or under construction worldwide but a growing body of science reveals a dark side it turns out the reservoirs formed by dams are a significant source of greenhouse gases Hmm. Particularly methane, which you just mentioned from. Yeah. Before, uh, which me- methane is um, th- around 34 times more potent than CO2 yeah. as a greenhouse gas. Uh, in the last 10 years, dozens of studies have shed light on this problem. One is a new study published October 5th in the journal Bioscience, thereby researchers at the Washington State University in Vancouver, Washington. It synthesizes the results of a hundred other studies to reveal that the world's reservoirs may be producing as much as 1.3% of all greenhouse gases caused by humans. That's more than all emissions produced by Canada. Wow. Uh, The study considers the emissions from 267 large reservoirs around the world, the only reservoirs from which emissions have been measured. It uses these results to estimate emissions from all reservoirs more than one million worldwide. Uh, prior research deduced that the reservoirs in tropical reasons, regions are the biggest emitters, but the new study finds that isn't necessarily true. Other factors are more important, particularly aquatic nutrient activity, which means North American and European reservoirs can also be big emitters. What's the science of them actually emitting? Yeah, I don't know. So you, why,
0: why are they yeah. different from lakes? Like, is yeah, it just yeah. fresh water, or is it the fact that they don't have the same ecosystem as a Well, lake?
2: and I'm wondering, is, it, is it, are there algal blooms in these Reservoirs? Like, does it say anything about the
1: actual science of them admitting? Yeah,
0: what gets The last half of the article is an interview with um, one of the researchers. Yeah,
1: to a couple of the researchers, Bridget Diemer and uh, her co author, John Harrison. Um, so, they compare in significance to biomass burning for energy production. The importance of that statement is that human sources of methane to the atmosphere, such as biomass burning to produce energy, are included in the UN process for accounting for greenhouse gas emissions by each country. But reservoir emissions are currently not included in that oh. process. So it's substantial. Um, so it everybody's comp- just like, hey,
2: man, dump your extra CO2 gas in this reservoir. Yeah. <laughs> they it's, don't it's, monitor it. It's, it's compar- not part of the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> we can bury it there. Yeah, yeah
0: and they said there's, there's a link between how, how biologically productive reservoirs are and how much methane they emit. Um, So
1: there's there's a lot of organic matter that's being produced and decomposed in systems that are biologically productive. You have the organic matter from the vegetation that's decomposed once the reservoir is flooded, and these can provide nutrients to support algal growth. In addition, Mm -hmm. in low oxygen conditions, nutrients can get liberated from sediments which can support further algal growth and decomposition, leading to greenhouse gas production. Hey,
2: that's what I just said, algal blooms.
1: Yeah. yeah. yeah feel good about that, guys. <laughs> uh, globally, fertilizer inputs to watersheds are a major source of nutrients.
0: So it's the fact that they're flooding things that already had vegetation is a big part of it, it sounds yeah. like?
1: Well, and, and uh, have you seen some of these,
2: like, have you seen pictures of algal blooms? It's pretty intense. They can just, like, take over...
0: Yeah, are, are they uh, always... Uh, um, aren't some of them weird colors are they yeah green? they can
2: be often very interesting colors uh-huh. they're actually really pretty but like really deadly because they just absorb all of the uh, nutrients from the makes, makes the water the water body not, yeah I not mean to other yes, life, basically yeah. big,
1: big time so they also found chlorophyll A in a reservoir correlates with emissions the concentration of chlorophyll A in a reservoir is an indicator of how green a body of water is and how much algal growth there is so systems with higher chlorophyll have higher algal concentrations. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: apparently, the reservoir size or depth does not matter. Other studies have found depth to be an important predictor of methane emissions from lakes and reservoirs, but they didn't find that. Uh, but by water level might, though. By reducing the water level, you reduce the pressure on sediments, which keeps bubbles in those sediments. And when you lower the water level, bubbles can expand, their buoyancy increases, and they get released directly to the atmosphere. Hmm. uh so so they asked uh the, this is kqed science asked the researchers should we be concerned that there are 3700 new dams at some stage of development globally uh so and uh, running the researchers said another insight from this study is that the per area emission of methane at reservoirs is actually about 25 percent higher than other studies have suggested that suggests the impact of every additional reservoir is likely to be greater than people have previously thought uh we're suggesting with these future dams is that this is a piece of the puzzle that needs to be considered when people are thinking about whether and where to conduct construct additional reservoirs, um, and and then as to whether it's still considered uh, still considering hydropower to be a clean and green source of energy. Uh, Dima says, "I think this study shows that dams, as a source of energy, aren't without their greenhouse costs." Even though it's a renewable source of energy, people should keep the greenhouse gas side of the picture in mind when making planning and policy decisions.
2: I mean, I agree with that big time. And I think a lot of people, you know, have this attitude that like, well, if it's not if it's not, if it's not
0: burning something fossil fuel, then it's the air, it it's must, good. Yeah. It's
2: like, well, it's better, but
1: we also need to be conscious of the yeah, adverse effect. Yeah. 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 yeah no. So now this this new study's come out, they can't take things into account, like water level, or reducing organic matter inputs by managing nutrients better on the landscape so they don't get into the reservoir, or sitting reservoirs upstream of potential sources of the nutrients mm. and organic matter that lead to the greenhouse gas production. Um, and uh, Is there
2: a push to get um, reservoirs you, you said they're not um, currently listed, they're not as part of um, the numbers that each state takes into account? for their greenhouse gas emissions? Is there a push to get
1: them? I do not know. It doesn't say so in this article, but that would make sense. Yeah.
0: And even though they're high as far as, like, the per-area emissions, it's still just 1% of overall emissions. It's not like it's... I don't know. I'm not trying to say it's not a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: It's just not
1: a. Yeah, it's the just, biggest problem. Well, I guess it's now something to be aware of as, like, a cost-benefit analysis. yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're like... Rather than just going, this is a zero pollution and all good, you go, no, this, this will produce this much of a greenhouse yeah, effect. Yeah. And, is and, that mitigating? Is the, that compensated by the amount that you're taking out from coal burning? In the end, I, t- science can sometimes be
2: frustrating because it's just sort of like, here's a problem. Like, we don't have a solution at all, but like, just be, be aware, aware of the problem. problem. And yeah. now it's like up to other people to be like, well, how could we make these less impactful?
0: You know. You know, yeah, and it's it's undeniable there are dangers to gases, as we've learned from multiple stories this week, <laughs> including one sent in by many listeners uh, that involves a fart that was blamed for causing a fire during surgery at a Tokyo <laughs> hospital.
1: I don't know who you think we are as a show, <laughs> but... Why would
0: you think this is something w- we would want to talk why about?
1: Why would you think, in all the years we've been doing this show, all the episodes we put out, our loyal listeners have assumed... The a story of a fart in an operation is up on a We are a
2: serious science podcast,
1: yeah. p- probably. But we will, we, we will de- cover this story. We will begrudgingly. <laughs> we will cover it. Yes. However, if this cost us the Peabody, then it's on <laughs> it's you. It's on you. Yeah, just
0: know that you brought this on yourselves. <laughs> so yeah, the fart fire incident originally occurred back in April, but a report was just released on October 28th by a committee of outside experts who looked at the case and determined there were no flammable materials in the operation room during the surgery? So, according they, to Japanese. so you're telling
2: me that someone was really trying to keep this story under wraps? I guess. It happened in April and they were like, well, do not let this leak. <laughs> do, not, <laughs> do not let this out there. Do you know how bad this makes us look? We need uh, to contain this thought. Yeah. <laughs> so, the
0: patient who was in her 30s was receiving an operation at the Tokyo Medical University Hospital in Shinjuku Ward that involved using a laser to perform surgery according to a report from the hospital (laughs) when the patient's intestinal gas leaked into the space of the operation room it ignited with the irradiation of the laser and the burning spread eventually reaching the surgical drape and causing the fire
2: I I love this story because it's so highbrow and lowbrow yeah. at the same yeah. time, it's like future lasers
0: and farts. <laughs> <laughs> and like investigations and subcommittees and like,
1: yeah. Uh, it sounds like some kid's high school science project. Yeah, <laughs> uh, We shot a fart with a laser and it...
2: <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, yeah. It's like a campfire, like, hey, shoot that laser over there, I'm going
0: to fart on it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got to make like a triptych out of uh, yeah, yeah. Or, what this is foam core. <laughs>
1: You like the fire pyramid, yeah, the yeah, three
0: yeah. ingredients needed for a fire:
1: <laughs> uh, oxygen, fart,
2: and laser. That was a deleted scene from Castaway when he yeah. was trying to. <laughs> he had a, he had his laser pointer and he was trying to fart on his laser pointer and it never worked.
0: <laughs> uh, so the committee also determined the equipment used in the operation was functioning normally, so it couldn't possibly be to blame during this unfortunate incident. So if you're ever going this in, if you're ever in the situation where you need to undergo laser surgery. Maybe try eating something light. Okay, but first of all, don't they have procedures to clear out every? To like, I mean, I know a, an enema wouldn't do that, but like uh, the diet they have you do before kind of surgery. Well, they have kind of fast. A lot of
1: times, any surgery has you fast, right, for like twelve hours beforehand. Yeah, before and if here. it's any kind of colorectal surgery, then yeah, you have to do a complete cleanse.
0: Yeah, so I mean, this I wouldn't blame. This, so we're this, this blaming the doctors on this one. think this has got to be. <laughs> This this raises a more important question of have any of you lit your farts before?
1: I actually haven't. I've You've never, never really?
2: tried it either. You've I've never always even
0: see... Oh, no, so now I've I'm
2: never. the bad guy. <laughs> oh, so this is on Maybe me. you're you're the only hero among us. Huh? Never, how have you not gotten <laughs> Wait, have you When have you done this?
0: Multiple times.
2: And does it work? Of course it works. For real. It's you have to have like a pretty big fart great, though, right?
0: No, it's a great party trick. It's it's not even a trick, but like yeah, it's uh it's fucking hilarious. <laughs>
2: That's amazing.
0: If, if I had one on deck, I would do it right now. Yeah, I mean... you could. And do what it is
2: through. it, just sort of, like, shoot a little fireball, and then it's gone? It's
0: it, A ball is generous. Um, I mean, I've never done it naked, that seems risky, but, you know, through pants... Because the it's hair would... Of, you'd,
1: want it, you'd want the pants there as like, a, as, like, a hair buffer. Yeah,
0: yeah. I've always wondered... Because, you know, growing up, did you guys ever make, like, WD-40 flamethrowers and yeah, stuff? Yeah, totally. And then I was always worried, what if the flame went up inside, but it... it you, Independent of the pressure differential, it it couldn't because it couldn't burn inside anyway because there's no oxygen inside yeah, the can, right? right. I think not, so. Not rec- kids, not th- recommending doing that anyway. Yeah, but, yeah, we um, did. It.
1: I th- links deodorant cans were normally the deodorant. Fi- yeah, links deodorant uh, was normally they're a good size to.
0: WD forty had those like
1: oh, yeah the they straw had the straw things, straws so that it, red straw again yeah. kids
0: don't do it, <laughs> um, but so I think there's the same like. When I when I did the first, time, I'm like, "What if it goes up inside me? My yeah. <laughs> yeah. ass yeah. blows up. No, it's, it's like it's like a fire. It's not a ball, and it's bigger than just a flame. It's I, like a fist size. Oh, okay. Fire. It's
1: like it's like if if the gas has been turned on for a, like an extra ten seconds before you manage to get the spark to light on it's the. Not that much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> ten seconds is a
1: long time. Oh, yeah. Like two seconds. Yeah,
0: yeah. but it's funny, um, and I I would guess that it probably neutralizes wait let me think are are the things that burn the things that don't smell also or not well it's it's
2: you're creating methane another but methane and that's isn't another, what
0: smell it's yeah, the yeah, that's, and that's stuff, an right?
2: odorless gas it's the other stuff that is sort of Yeah yeah carries but methane it. is very flammable so that is yes. ostensibly what is lighting on fire. That is what but, I'm, but I'm yeah. wondering,
0: does the does the fact that you're lighting it also then neutralize the smell? Because then you're doing a favor and you're entertaining a crowd because yeah. you're not stinking up the room. It's like and lighting
2: it was... a match after you take a poop. Right. Uh. Which,
0: does that do... Yeah, does that... Is it just that the f- 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 smell of the smoke masks it or does it burn off the I think it's probably smelly mostly
1: masking it.
0: Yeah. No? Yeah, yeah I, I would, would assume. So. Yeah.
1: Because uh, anyway. also that really excites the air. Like, the sudden heat source would suddenly...
0: Excites the air?
1: What do you mean? Will something cause a greater airflow? No, I don't know if it makes any. I think it's probably just the smell of the.
0: Probably just the smell of the smoke when you put um,
1: it out. It does say. I, I we're reading different articles about the same operation. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of articles to be so read. Yeah. yeah, mine yeah. was
0: Gizmodo. What was yours?
1: Well, uh, hang on, I've lost lost where it's gone now. I think it was Ars Technica, or no, it might be in the Times. Anyway, apparently the. Uh, uh, like it says the that might be to blame was like checking was like checking the pulse and accidentally pulled pulled the finger. <laughs> ah,
0: so. Okay. Okay. That was the article. Uh, but, uh, that was looking for. That's different. Uh, different source. Yeah. Hey there, probably scientists. The holidays are fast approaching and I know you're stressed. You're trying to figure out what to get for those science minded loved ones in your lives. Well, stress no more. We've got the answer for you. It's called the curiosity box by Vsauce. If you aren't familiar with Vsauce, you should be. It's a great, great, great YouTube channel featuring videos relating to science, philosophy, gaming, technology, and culture. It's that rare mix in the 21st century of both very smart and very popular. They have 15 million subscribers. I had the pleasure of working this summer on an upcoming show with the host of Vsauce One, Michael Stevens, and to prepare, I binged on on Vsauce One episodes, watched all of them, and oh my god, they're so addictive and so informative. You're going to love them. So check out Vsauce on YouTube. So the people at Vsauce decided to put together this box for their fans that comes out once a quarter, and it has at least $85 worth of value for around $45 plus shipping and handling. Every box has an exclusive T-shirt, science experiments, and a total of five to seven geeky science toys and gear. It's always a different thing every quarter. You never know what you're going to get. If you want to look up past ones, you can check out unboxing videos for the Curiosity Box on YouTube and see what kind of things it's had. I've seen a couple uh, at Michael's office and it's always really fun stuff. Basically, if you're the kind of kid who grew up loving going to hands on museums, watching Bill Nye, Mr. Wizard, that kind of stuff, you're going to love this. Um, and the best thing is the proceeds for the curiosity box go to support Alzheimer's research. So to order yours, you can go to curiositybox.com/probablyscience. slash probably science and when you do that, you're supporting the show. You'll also get a free Vsauce beanie It's an $18 value. So again, check out curiositybox.com slash probably science to order this mystery box that comes out once a quarter. It's a great gift or it's a great thing to give yourself. You're going to love it. Check it out. And thank you for supporting the show. Back to it. <music>
2: Yeah, so
1: apparently just avoiding, avoiding it. I was like, I was like on the edge of my
2: seat, being like, "What did the What did they do? Did they mess up somewhere?" Yeah, no, it was it was it a, really sucked me into that It was that tension,
1: one. Uh, like additional tension applied to uh, the <laughs> index uh, left digit of the patient that says here.
0: Oh, I just found I found a third article about it that talks about the reason it took this long to get to the bottom of the investigation is because the uh, the lead surgeon. Uh, was the first to detect it, so they just went with the... Uh, oh. oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thou, thou, it was originally given the blame. Sme- that who smelt it must yeah. have dealt it. Right.
1: <laughs> Even <laughs> though he we're did deny with it. We're going some
2: solid childhood jokes here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate this dad joke level we're
0: on right, <laughs> right? now. <laughs> but yeah, um, nice work, Tokyo. Keep up the...
2: So are there any repercussions from this?
0: I guess the drapes caught on fire. Yeah.
2: Wow. Oh. Or not
0: the drape. I'm sorry. Surgical drape. I'm sorry. That... That's not yeah. drape, that's like the thing that's over. I was like, the drape? That's a pretty big fireball. No, it's not can just the also thing that's immediately if around. You, like, uh,
2: if you went and this weirdo like was decorating his house all hospital style and he's like, here's my drapes. <laughs> I've made them out of surgical, surgical drapes.
0: <laughs> so yeah, Matt, did you actually find a different article that had more detail though? Cause I, well, no, I, wanna... I didn't. Oh, just yeah, that was
1: okay. all okay. leading up to a very... It. it was worth it. It was <laughs> worth it. Immature Yeah,
0: yeah it's, that's all I can see is that it did catch the drape on fire. But um, i it, they didn't say that there was any negative impact on the patient. I assume not. No, I'm sorry. Wait, no. Yeah. The very first sentence that I already read caused a fire that led to serious burns in her body. Okay, so we're sorry. I'm sorry. Um, person who had surgery and farted.
1: I'm glad we got all the laughs out before we found out the
0: horrible <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wasn't. Now
2: this story is ending on a very somber uh, note.
1: <laughs> but the important thing is we had fun first. Yes. yes.
0: No one was. Oh, wait. Someone was hurt. That's right. Okay. Matt, do you have something else for us? Uh,
1: and the
2: the weirdest thing though about that would be she's she's under she's under, so she comes back out from being under and it's like ah why am I
0: yeah sober? like she why has I have no, a no new idea. injury right yeah
1: right. Uh, why are different bits of me hurting yeah this wasn't this surgery supposed to make my life better? So a few people sent in this story as well. I'll let's I'll do the one that Justin Broad sent. Uh... Again, I don't know what it is about our show that makes you think that a nightmare machine <laughs> that researchers have developed uh, might interest us. But uh, CSIRO, which apparently is—I uh, think that's the main Australian uh, look- like government research thingy. One of our one of our listeners said that. Yeah, the Commonwealth Scientific and Indus- Industrial Research uh, Organization. Uh, which is, like, proper, like, government research thing, Um, and uh, in association with MIT, have created a nightmare machine, which is an algorithm-based piece of artificial intelligence that spontaneously generates zombie faces out of human ones and transforms images images of places onto visions of the inferno. Uh, Dr. Manuel... Even his name... This is how
2: we're spending our research money? His name is
1: almost... His name almost is Cerberus. <laughs> his name is Dr. Manuel uh, Sebrian Ramos. <laughs> uh, there's definitely a Cerberus anagram in there somewhere. Um, a research scientist at Data61, the CSIRO Data and Digital uh, Innovation Group, and his colleagues fed 200,000 images of normal human faces into the machine's neural network to teach it to recognize faces. The algorithm was then able to generate faces at random according to what it had learned. Then it added a single zombie face, giving yeah. it slightly more weight in the neural network than the others to turn human faces into zombies.
2: Jesus Christ.
1: Uh, Dr. Sebrian said feedback from people who have answered an online survey gauging how scary they found the newly transformed faces would soon would soon be added to the machine to enhance the images it generates.
2: Wait, but what is the point? I'm still waiting for the point
1: of this. That's a zombie Ellen DeGeneres. This is just like,
2: oh, this is fun. This is yeah. what this is.
0: it's just saving time. Hey, you know? I
2: want to pitch my PhD dissertation. <laughs> uh, I want to turn regular faces into zombie faces. Eh? Huh? What do you think, Harvard? But I don't <laughs> want to have to pay <laughs>
0: graphic designers to do it. I yeah. want it to be automatic, and I, I want it to be.
2: This Autonomous. You, you've heard of artificial intelligence well what about artificial zombie right. intelligence
1: yeah
0: the Generous one's pretty pretty good
1: so dr sebrian said the nightmare machine is not simply a seasonal novelty it also has practical implications our main goal is obviously not to scare people this are-
2: <laughs> is How can you claim that when you're calling it the nightmare machine?
1: No, 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 no. We want it to improve people's lives. It's the nightmare machine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is just a Halloween fun, goofy project, he said. What we are interested in is how to instill particular emotions in people so we can feel positive emotions like warmth, friendliness, a machine telling the human, work with me, trust me. In order to, for these machines not to not scare humans, you need to teach them first what scares humans. <laughs> this is what we do with children.
0: <laughs> what? Jeez. Is it? This is like the most
1: backward logic I've ever heard. Yeah.
0: Uh,.
1: It uh. does feel a bit homeopathic. Like we need to find out what makes you ill and we give you some of that to it's make like you
0: hitting your head against the wall cuz it feels so good when you stop hitting your head against the wall. It does
1: it, 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 and it's it's like, hey, tell me your deepest darkest
2: fears so I could avoid them or bring them out when I really want to hurt
0: basically you. Basically like Scientology <laughs> auditing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, tell us all the stuff that we might use against you later. Yeah. It
1: it does make sense that you do want to if you want to know if you want to know the parameters of what humans find N- not disconcerting. Yeah. If you want to know what humans find warm, you do need to find the lower bound of that, which means finding what they find scary or disconcerting. Uh, and I, mean, I guess, I I guess, would guess say... the set
0: of things that are scary is probably smaller than the set of things that aren't scary.
1: Yeah, and when you come, like, for example, when you come to, like, teaching kids what is good or nice, you teach them don't talk to strangers, don't eat this berry. So then they, all, through that, they also learn who you can talk to. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that goes
2: back to, you guys ever, you know... The negative brain bias you talk about that, before. just the fact that like losses so,
0: hurt more than wins. Feel well, good. and
2: so I mean it's a it's an evolutionary uh, reality of human beings. So our brains are much much more likely to hang on to negative information than right, positive right. information because negative information kept us alive. Yeah. So that's what you're saying is like you're saying don't talk to strangers, don't do that because that we'll remember those negative sort of yeah. lessons before will be like talk to only family, you know. Yes. And then they won't they won't remember that.
1: That makes sense.
2: Oh. Uh-huh. But I will say, you know, now on when people talk about these these are trying to find uh, you know, people's like list of things that they find too scary. Um, I have a new one on my list and that is Nightmare Machines. <laughs> uh, <laughs> has certainly been added to my list of things I am afraid of.
1: Uh so it says <laughs> Um, it says, for some people It is not just the images produced by the machine They find terrifying The fact that the machine is capable of learning and thinking creatively Is equally off-putting yes. <laughs> Now as we know the machines are getting closer and closer To being like us That is really scary for humans We've known this for a while While it may be a while for before the machines rise up to annihilate us <laughs> There are more mundane <laughs> concerns that To be had as well Toby Walsh, professor of AI at the University of New South Wales And group leader at Data61 says the things people should actually be worried about are not really things like Terminator. There are more immediate threats. Uh, I think we're already th- seeing that today with things like autonomous cars. Um, we've started to realize... Yeah, I don't trust them. <laughs> I'm surprised there-
0: that the AI guy is against autonomous
1: cars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, recently, there was a story about how a program was being used to decide sentencing in the United States. It was biased against black people.
0: Which I, I think, hadn't heard about. I wanna yeah. find oh, out. Oh, I about can talk we can talk about
1: that in a second. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll start to realise the consequences of giving too much responsibility to machines. Yeah, this was I can I can track down the actual if you want to track try and track down the actual Wait, story. S- is this
2: so this guy that's saying this about the the last stuff you just read, is that one of the guys that created this nightmare machine? Yes. That's weird. So he's like <laughs> it's almost like he's saying, like, no no no, I wanted to I wanted to create this to show you how you shouldn't be creating this sort of stuff. Almost feels like what he's saying. It's like, yeah, we can create this, but we probably shouldn't be. Is uh, that sort
1: of what he's saying there? Uh, no, I, th- I think he is saying there are more immediate concerns. But he is saying, I think he is saying, the- but he's saying like, like
2: we need to have a healthy distrust of artificial intelligence.
1: Yeah, well, and machine learning, and there because there are problems about people assuming that, um. This sentencing story, if I remember rightly, and Andy can probably get up more accurately, but this is... There is an algorithm they've used to generate, to decide parole uh, details. It, it's basically to decide, to analyze the chances of recidivism. Okay. So it's... So they've gone, like, okay, humans make bad, biased decisions when they're deciding who they should give parole to or not. They look at They look at the person's face, they look at the skin color, whether they are actively racist or just assume, like... Even if they're just good-looking. Yeah. like Just, well, just
0: yeah. all these... Biases. that's Adam, Have you seen, yeah. like,
1: when little kids... Do mm-hmm. you ever see this? When, like,
2: a little kid, you'll be like... They'll put a spectrum of faces on, on a sheet of paper, and to the left is a white person, and it gets progressively darker and darker as you yeah. go to a black person and there's shades in between and you th- there have been studies on this sort of stuff where you ask like a little kid point out the good person and there's no good or right. bad yeah, person yeah. on that yeah. they're just faces and little kids will point to the white person as the good person and yeah. they'll say point out the bad person and they'll point to a black person right. which is like horrifying but you just see how much like institutional racism is an actual yeah, problem. The yeah. Even if you're not racist yourself, like, you're yeah. part of... The sum part of all
1: of other human experiences. And, yeah. like, and like Andy just pointed out as well, it's absolutely the case that good-looking people receive lighter senses. Right.
0: There's just tons of... I mean, there's tons of biases that we, we're we just bad at... The same way we're bad at driving, and yet as soon as we talk about letting a machine do it, then one person dies, like, whoa, we have to stop. Like, that was that rate was lower than what humans... Well, and the, you know the, what I mean? The like, problem is
2: is that if that... Machinery fails, it is very easy to blame the technology. If the technology fails, you can quantify how many people have died because of that technology failing, but you can't, it's harder to quantify how many lives it saved.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, this gets into. Like, I found the article here. I can send it to you, Matt, um, or one of the articles talking about this sentencing. This probably came after. This is August of this year. Yes. Yeah, a year ago, there was an episode of Radiolab, my favorite one they've done, called Blame, or the the topic was Blame. I'm not sure what it was called, but they talk about this kind of stuff, and if we should move to a model of just, like, purely by the numbers sentencing, what are the chances of the person committing the crime again? Because that ends up being more fair than having humans involved. But totally. then it also gets into, like, theories of crime and punishment. Is the purpose of punishment just to keep someone unsafe off the street, or is it punitive? Is it, like... We're we're given you did something bad. We're going to do something bad to you, or is mm. it to rehabilitate? Like, what is the primary purpose?
1: And, and it, that becomes more of a moral. question. Yeah, exactly. Right. I don't know. What th- and the the idea of this this thing it sort of used it used machine learning. It took all of this data in, and then it analyzed like various criteria to look for, and it gives gave these uh basically gives the people in prison a questionnaire that they have to fill out, and they can correlate that questionnaire to the chance of recidivism. And that helps decide when, the, when their parole is and when they're let out. But the problem is, this is being sold as a completely independent, dispassionate way of yes. analyzing whether they should be granted parole. But all of the problems of society and institutionalized ingrained bias are built into the process. Mm. So, because,
2: people, because people created this process, yeah. basically? Well, not just
1: because people created this process, just the things that you ask... The things that they that mm. the machine has decided correlate on a point system to the chance of recidivism, are also things that are highly correlated with their situation, their upbringing, yeah, their yeah, race, yeah, their yeah. Uh, mm. their uh, town that they live in, their their wealth level. Yeah, yeah. And so all of these things, all these biases, are still coming through in the system. Interesting. But now it's being seen as like a as a judgment free system. No, no human. Can step in and actually use their judgment to decide. So they, you've ended up with situations where someone who's been as like completely well-behaved and wouldn't recommit a crime, being judged because they fall into these seven categories. Yeah, because they, they score highly on certain criteria. Because they grew up
2: poor and they yeah. And yeah, sort of it's
0: stuff. it's an algorithm or it's a system called Compass C O M P A S. I don't see what that stands for, but um, it uses a proprietary algorithm, so we don't know the exact. Oh, that's it's the easier. other
1: thing it's completely uh, yeah. it's not open source in any way it's a proprietary algorithm yeah. and they and, won't... And is, I'll, I'll read you with the actual in fact used all the time now uh, yep yeah, well, in
0: Lancaster, okay. Pennsylvania um, yeah judges are asked to look at each defendant individually to determine his or her rehabilitation needs during sentencing Compass's algorithm when used takes out that human assessment puts in place the algorithm And uh, ProPublica found that Compass's scores were unreliable in predicting a defendant's likelihood of committing future crimes. In fact, black defendants were twice as likely to be flagged as possible future criminals over whites. Some of the criteria the company uses to determine future crime rates include education level and whether the person holds a job. The reality is, if you're facing sentencing in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, judges may have some discretion in how long you go to jail or whether you are given probation or other rehabilitation options instead of jail. Let's see well, well, while algorithms for sentencing claim to put an unbiased eye on the sentencing process, the reality is sentencing can be complex. Many factors should be considered. Yeah, I wish there were more hard numbers well, on how this how this got how this was wrong. Or, I mean, if yeah, I get that it was biased. It, it but Was ba- it also wrong about
2: it? Basically, rates? just uh, keeps propagating all the problems with the prison system. Right? Now. I mean, right now it's like if you are black in America, you have a much Higher probability of going to prison, yeah. Partly because of the system that's you know been set up in place to uh, punish black people more and to to seek out that sort of stuff, and then this basically just continues that trend instead of rising above it. Yeah, is sort of what it seems like. It's just,
0: and I found a much better and more comprehensive article, but I I can't I can't even start to get through it right now because what I just landed on first I realized was a site that's like about uh, attorneys and was <laughs> saying like <laughs> you should get a good criminal defense attorney such as so they were citing this ProPublica article which we'll link to and you guys can check out but yeah I'm curious about how these numbers worked out I didn't realize this was happening I just knew this was something people had talked about as being uh, a possible solution to human error but um yeah it's uh it's some sticky it's a sticky wicket
2: yeah and and the problem is is like I it's such a complex problem yeah. that I don't know what the solution is,
0: and I don't even know if, um, like I said, I, I don't know what, even what theory I hold for what the purpose of punishment is. Yeah, know? is it just hurting someone because they hurt society, or is it trying to seems, fix them? Yeah, I mean rehabilitation. Or is it trying to keep society to safe from them. Is it saying like if they're if they're possibly going to commit this again? We want to keep society safe. Therefore, they should be out of society.
2: Yeah. I mean, to me, like the sort of goody two-shoes in me or whatever wants to think that, oh, it's about rehabilitation because... You know, everybody deserves to be a productive member of society. But the problem is with that, if that's your main goal, well, we also have a system set up that, like, it's so hard for those people to get jobs after they get out of prison. And it's hard for them uh, to reintegrate into society because we don't have a lot of programs for reintegration once you're out of prison and stuff like that. And there are
0: lots of horrible crimes that are committed by somebody where you can pretty safely say that was a one-off. You know? Does that yeah, mean they yeah, should yeah. just go back on the streets? Like- yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, he's not going to get another wife. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but there are things like that, yeah. you
1: know. Like, <laughs> are they going to keep him pretty far away from any other presidents? <laughs> 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 um, uh, this is pretty cool. Um, Aboriginal Australians and Pacific Islanders carry DNA of an unknown human species. Research analysts suggest. uh, People from Papua New Guinea and Northeast Australia uh, carry small amounts of DNA of an unidentified extinct human species, uh, according to a new research analyst. Analysis, rather. Um, The analysis suggests that the DNA is unlikely to come from Neanderthals or uh, Denisovans, but from a third extinct hominid, previously unknown to archaeologists statistical geneticist ryan bolander and his team investigated percentages of extinct hominid dna in modern humans they found discrepancies in previous analysis and found that interbreeding between neanderthals and denisovans was not the whole story to us ancestors genetic makeup Uh, he presented his analysis to the american society of human genetics in canada saying the scientists were either missing a population or misunderstanding something about the relationships Uh, So, him and his colleagues used a computer model to figure out the amount of Neanderthal and Denisovan DNAs carried by by modern humans. They found that European and Chinese people carry around 2.8% of Neanderthal DNA. But Europeans have no Denisovan ancestry, and Chinese people only have 0.1%. Modern populations from South Pacific regions, including Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, New Caledonia, West Papua, and the Maluku Islands, have 2.74% of the DNA as coming from Neanderthals. Uh, Mr. Bolander estimates the amount of Denisovan DNA in these people is about as low as 1.11%, not the 3 to 6% estimated by other researchers. So, him and his colleagues have come to the conclusion that a third group of hominids may have bred with the ancestors of melanesians uh the sequencing of complete neanderthal and denisovan genomes have provided several insights into human history one important insight stems from the observation that modern non-africans and archaic populations shared more derivative alleles that they should have if there was no admixture between them we now know that the ancestors of modern non-africans met and intergressed with um Neanderthals, and Denisovans.
0: I haven't heard that word before, and I'm gonna use that from now on. Yeah. <laughs> you
1: Yeah. Did you, in, you, you introgress tonight, man? Yeah, I
2: did. The, 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 Maybe it's just because we're just coming from this prison story, but the first thing that pops in my head is like, oh dear god, I hope this story doesn't fall into like racist white people hands and being like, yeah. "See?
0: I told you they weren't humans."
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like, "No, that's not
1: what we're saying." side <laughs> of that,
0: they might have superpowers. We don't know <laughs> yeah. if that yeah. might I be. I could it be works.
1: wrong about this, but I think it like since it, I think Africans have the lowest seem to have the lowest percentage of non uh Homo Wait, these are DNA. all hominids, right? But They're all hominids. Homo sapien or non homo sap Yeah. Uh, whatever yeah. The, well, the, what was the precursor, the direct precursor? Homo erectus. I,
0: it, I never know all the different wor- like What is Homo erectus versus Homo sapien? Is that is that after the branch off from. I don't know. Yes, Homo erectus fall.
2: is after the branch off from, from, Neander- from Neanderthal.
0: And is it Neanderthal or Thaw? Because I've also heard
1: it tall a bunch yeah, of times. Yeah, I've heard it both yeah. ways too. I don't that know might be a shit. UK, US one thing. But they. Uh, um, yeah, because back in the day they didn't think that there was any interbreeding between uh, Neanderthals and the. They
0: just and thought it was a branch that went existence. off on of its own and just yeah, yeah. And
1: died out, and now it's known that we have a certain proportion of Neanderthal DNA, yeah. and it turns out Denisovan DNA as well. I didn't realize that they're two hominid species that migrated out of Africa. Yeah, I don't two. know.
2: I don't know. Denisovans.
1: So, according to theory, Neanderthals left Africa about 300,000 years ago, settling in Europe and parts of Western Asia. The Denisovan species was only discovered in 2008. Yeah, when that's, okay, that's why I don't know it. Right, when paleoanthropologists discovered a 400, sorry, 40. There is a. <laughs> oh, there's an extra
0: zero after the comma. That's. A
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this this um this article on ABC <laughs> has put. The confusion here is that they've put the they've either put the comma in the wrong place or there's an, or there's extra, an extra zero because right. there's four and then a zero and then a comma and then four zeros so it's either forty thousand <laughs> I think it uh, I, or I, think 000. 000. Uh, that, I think it's four hundred thousand that it's would
2: put it before 40, the Neanderthals yeah, for, left then
0: is the is the only thing that I would but forty thousand is pretty too recent. recent to have that much of a I mean we're I we're know.
1: talking ice age was twenty thousand let years me ago. see I'm gonna Google this separately because this is <sighs> Uh.
0: As you're googling, so they found a tooth and pinky bone of of the Denisovan species from a young girl in a Siberian cave, and scientists examined the DNA from the bone and found that although the girl was closely related to the Neanderthals, it was distinct enough to merit classification as a new species. Hmm. And there was genetic overlap between the Denisovan genome and that of present-day East Asians and a group of Pacific Islanders living in Papua New Guinea.
1: Okay, forty. It was for is forty. 40 okay, 40, there's an extra zero. zero. 000. Uh, yeah, according to a slightly more accurate article, it's between 30 and 50,000 year old, years old. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there's this is genetic overlap, and that's why the discovery of a possible third hominid species is a remarkable discovery, especially considering the discovery was made from the DNA of modern people. Uh, Mr. Boland's. F- Mr. That's weird as well. No, Mr. Bolander? Not doctor? Interesting. Um, <laughs> He's just a guy. He's been reading about stuff in his mom's basement. <laughs> Have me an idea? Yep. Uh, they are supported by an earlier study from the University of Cambridge, which sequenced the genomes of 83 Aboriginal Australians from the Pama Nyungan speaking language group, which covers around 90% of the continent, and 25 Highland Papuans. It revealed Papuan and Aboriginal ancestors left Africa around 72,000 years ago and then split from the main group around 58,000 years ago. Hmm. They reached the supercontinent of Sahul that originally united Tasmania, mainland Australia, and New Guinea around 50,000 years ago, picking up the DNA of Neanderthals, Denisovans, and another extinct hominin along the way.
2: So I guess we just don't have enough like research Then people need to go out and look for... Evidence of this third hominid species, huh?
1: Uh huh. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know where. Yeah, I'd I, I imagine there would be fossils of it somewhere yeah. in existence.
0: Now I'm trying to think how long would we have to, like, sequester a subset of the world's population before they might form a different species? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, could you it's... even do it? Could you?
2: Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, of. 10,000 years?
0: If we probably? Just had, if we just cut off... If Australia was just like left to its own yes, and devices you
1: for 10,000 10, years. Any, you
2: didn't have any sort of yeah. exchange of DNA between Australia and anywhere yeah. else?
1: We've already established, because uh, it's come up a few times on the show, how the concept of species... Right, it's an arbitrary... Is, or not arbitrary. Yeah, uh, it's is nothing like as clear-cut as it was taught in school. Mm -hmm. or or believed to be 20 years ago it's now taxonomy is far more grey area or murky than it used to be fluid right because it used to be
0: like can you interbreed and if you by that definition then Neanderthals wouldn't be a different species because you can produce fertile offspring that was one early definition yeah that was was... that was
1: what I remember being taught in biology at school like a species is too offspring isn't yeah
2: you know uh, I mean it's what we've been saying for years guys sexuality is fluid you know (laughs) everything is
0: up in the air (laughs) yeah
1: well, speaking of which, uh, Patient Zero double exonerated the story. Boom, boom. The story came, a few people sent this one in as well, and the story initially, um, the story was reported a little bit inaccurately, because it was reported as, a uh, genetic research has exonerated the guy previously thought to be Patient Zero. Which patient was Zero was Patrick, the person.
0: Patrick Dempsey, right? He was, like, touching a monkey, then he flew on a plane, and...
1: Patient Zero for what? For HIV. Uh, oh, for is, HIV. Okay. Uh, so it was originally attributed to one person, uh, who was basically carried the blame for years. But Gary? yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't do anything right. Yeah. Oh. Did you put the HIV I in touched. the population? <laughs> uh, yeah, this story isn't. This story is interesting for science reasons. It isn't as interesting for cultural reasons as it was believed to, as it was reported in that he has been exonerated previously by other research. Okay. Um, Is this guy still alive?
0: No, he died like 40 years ago.
1: Okay. Uh, so uh Gaten, uh Douglas who was dubbed patient 0 um he was one of thousands of people infected with to um he was originally thought to be the person who brought HIV into the population. Uh it genetic and um I'm trying to find the original story. So um uh, not the l a times one well i'm trying to I'm trying to find what the initial thing that he was blamed for was specifically oh, okay right, so we can talk about the debunking um but so it was I originally mean, traced back just to him in the late seventies, and one of the things that is now known is that actually um h i v circulated in New York from the early seventies from um he was, and Douglas was one of thousands of people who were infected with the virus by the late 70s, well, years so, before it was officially recognized by the medical community in 1981.
2: Obviously, the, like, urban legend is sex with a monkey. That's what people, you've heard that, like, when you were a kid, you heard that, yeah, right? Yeah, it came
0: from monkeys. But, yeah, yeah but isn't th- the plot of That out- has
2: no basis in reality, correct?
0: I don't think so. That's just
1: the plot of Outbreak, though, right? <laughs> isn't that
0: what happens with Patrick Dempsey? He doesn't. Fuck a monkey, but I think he's like doing monkey research and then so
1: it looks like it came from came from the uh Caribbean from Haiti as well. Hmm. Uh Oh yeah, it went Um The new evidence comes from two caches of serum samples taken from gay men in New York City in seventy eight and seventy nine and in San Francisco in seventy eight. Uh, serum is blood with the red white cells removed. Um The men were participating in a study of hepatitis B, which was prevalent in the gay community at the time. They weren't tested for HIV because it wasn't known to exist back then. However, if any of them had it, there should be evidence in their blood in the form of antibodies, the proteins that our immune system make to fight an infection, which I think for a long time was still how they went, how they detected HIV. Now there are slightly more sophisticated tests. Um... To see if any of the men in hepatitis B study had contracted HIV, a different group of researchers analyzed the New York City samples and found that, indeed, 6.6% of them contained HIV antibodies. Inspired by this work, uh, they did a sim- similar test for the West Coast samples and discovered HIV antibodies in 3.7% of them. The presence of antibodies can show whether a person has contracted a certain virus, but they can't provide much detail about the virus itself. So his group's next step was to scour the serum samples for fragments of HIV RNA that may have Mm. been circulating in their bloodstream. It was a bit of a long shot. The samples were decades old, and RNA is generally too fragile to survive for long periods. But they were persistent. They selected 53 samples for attempted genetic sequencing, and were eventually able to cobble together the full HIV genomes of eight of them, three from San Francisco and five from New York. Uh, And
2: this was before it was publicly recognized that HIV existed?
1: Uh, well, this is research done now on blood samples yes. that were taken from the 70s. But the
2: blood samples were, bef- were yes, taken before exactly HIV Yes, exactly that. They were from recognized. a hepatitis study that yeah. was... A,
1: they had the blood taken for a hepatitis study when they didn't even know HIV was a thing. They didn't. Okay. Uh, uh, Roby says, these old sequences are as good as a time machine. Scientists track the evolution of a virus over time by tallying the number of substitutions or mutations in its genome. Um, to explain how this works... Robi, the researcher likes to conjure a cactus imagine if you're staring at a saguaro with a tall central column and a couple of branches curving up like arms if you have a single time point now it's difficult to gauge the cactus's age however if you could get a picture of the cactus from over 10 years from 10 years ago you could calculate the growth rate for each of its branches over that time then you can make an educated guess about how much the cactus grows each year that's what we do with hiv molecular clocks uh, geneticists measure how many mutations occur in the genome in a gi- given time period. This is how they determine that HIV was first transmitted from a chimpanzee to a single human it- early in the 20th century in sub-Saharan Africa. The HIV molecular clock also allows researchers to trace landmark movements in the e- or moments in the evolution of the virus. After the initial transmission from chimp to human, the next one came when HIV began circulating in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. By 1960, viral samples from the city were tremendously diverse, suggesting HIV had been present in the area for a long time. And around 1967, a branch of the virus known as HIV-1 group M subtype B took hold in the Caribbean and diversified in Haiti. The new work makes clear that this strain first jumped from the Caribbean to New York City in 1970 or 71. Oh, damn. And by the late 70s, when the eight serum samples were collected, the five viral genomes from New York already had a high degree of genetic diversity. The three from San Francisco did not. This indicates HIV was probably in New York much longer than it was in San Francisco. It appears New York City was a key turning point. New York City acts as a hub from which the virus moved to the West Coast and eventually to Western Europe, Australia, Japan, South Africa, and other places. I blame New York for most things. Oh, only in New York, right? (laughs) (laughs) But that pizza,
0: hey, come on, all is forgiven.
1: Uh, Dr. Beatrice Hahn, a professor of. I can't believe HIV has its own boat. Uh, Dr. Beatrice Hahn, a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania who studies the origin and evolution of immunodeficiency diseases, says she was impressed by the lengths the authors went to in order to find actual virus samples from so long ago. Uh, Hahn, who was not involved in the research, noted that while many of the findings had been put forward before, the new study provides more convincing evidence because it was the first to isolate the complete full-length virus genome from such early samples. It always helps to nail it," she says.
0: <laughs> this is cool. Uh, by the way, I, I did S- some more digging like about a, a smart.
2: It always helps to nail it. Yeah, it's very eloquent of her.
0: <laughs> I'm fucking nail it! I, I did some more research on the guy who was initially called Patient Zero, and he's from Quebec, so I'm guessing it's like pronounced Gaetan Dugas or something. Um, but interestingly, he was codenamed by um, the CDC. So. They were tracking California, New York, and he was codenamed Patient O, as in out of California. And they misconstrued the O as zero.
1: That's right. That is the bond of the story. Huh.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and that was the f- that was the first time that, like, Patient Zero became a thing to well, say? Well, I'm not
0: quite sure what the... So, it looks like... A study published in 84 traced many early HIV infections to an unnamed infected gay male flight attendant. However, the CDC researcher, again referred to him as patient O, oh, but I'm not sure who first misconstrued that or when they misconstrued it. He was featured prominently in, in The Band Played On, which was an 87 book about the AIDS epidemic.
1: Um, well, also, he was initially identified by the CDC as case number 057, oh, which well, means was already- likely the 57th <laughs> patient they heard about who'd been sickened by the mysterious illness. A few years later, he participated in a study by the CDC that connected 40 men in 10 American cities who all had AIDS and were linked through sexual contact. And yeah, it does say here, he was identified as patient O for outside of California, but when investigators numbered the cases according to the day when each patient's symptoms started to appear, the letter O was mistaken for the number zero, and the Mm. Canadian flight attendant entered the literature with that dubious label. In actuality... His symptoms were not reported until seventy eight seventy nine and eighty considerably later than other cases in the cluster hmm. uh, the medical community never released his name to the public, but journalist Randy Schultz identified him in his nineteen eighty seven book and the band played on about f- the five the first five years of the AIDS epidemic so this guy
2: got vilified just because someone was like a type type. it was a zero, zero right. yeah a, was a, t- a common password error yeah. Uh, oh man that sucks and the whole time he's like no it was an O it was like he's like you yeah. know how frustrating it is when you're like saying something and nobody will believe you <laughs> I feel like that's what he was for years sure like I'm zero. telling you it was an O yeah. <laughs> but he's like yeah okay buddy uh, I
0: didn't know, I had no idea that it was so prevalent in the 70s or not that prevalent but that it was well, well, I, think I think the researchers
1: it... didn't necessarily is like this is that this is something that the researchers have discovered so it was, it was known for a long time that patient O was not patient zero yeah. but the fact that the strains were so diversified in New York by the late 70s implies the really age Im- implies yeah. that thousands had it and it was really widespread but also because of the diversification they can now start to plop a- plot more accurate maps of how it spread around the world
2: well and they probably I mean they knew that it existed they just thought it was something else it sounds like they thought it was hepatitis or just like a different form of yeah. right. something else that already well, it looks existed like this, this
1: blood sample was just from a hepatitis study it was completely unrelated hmm. but they just had it already in the blood um, so Schultz, who wrote this book, the, and the band played on, himself died of AIDS in '94.
2: Oh wow!
1: Uh, but it says Dugas told researchers, that, he, or Dugara, that told uh, researchers that he averaged 250 sexual partners a year, and Schultz portrayed him as a vain and arrogant playboy who ignored doctors' orders to stop having sex to keep his infection from spreading. Media reviewers took the idea of a villainous patient zero and ran with it. Uh, Despite attempts at clarification and protests then and since, many still believe the story today, the study authors wrote. While there are epidemiological benefits to knowing how an outbreak begins, the researchers say that doesn't mean anyone is at fault. No one should be blamed for the spread of a virus that nobody even knew about. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder
0: if we've... Are there, like, best practices? Like, if this happens again, will we catch it faster and therefore contain it? Or are we... Powerless because the process of discovering it is always slower than, you know, like, have we actually learned anything? I don't know why I'm asking you Uh, this. I'm asking the world this. So listeners... Yeah, uh, I don't know. I know we've got some epidemiologists. epidemiologists. I mean, I
2: I think that we have enough resources um, based on this stuff and and, and people working on it that I think we probably would catch it faster than this. But certainly we wouldn't catch it right away. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's still a lag time because... You, you know, it's like, it's sort of like this idea of like, well, you can't even discover something until you start asking the right questions. Yeah. yeah.
1: Which is why, like, all the eighty 80s, 80s comic trope, I think even Bill Hicks had a routine about like when the day AIDS is cured, uh, what? Just there was somebody fucking in the streets. Oh, yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. But, nah, it's still a bad idea. <laughs> Still, like even if even if you know you now have a hundred well you now know actually there is a pretty like Truvada preventative prep preventative yeah. um medicine is pretty good at there have been there's been one transmission of someone on Truvada, mm-hmm. but like the conditions had to be very distinct. But if someone if someone on Truvada has sex with someone who is HIV positive but has negligible traces because they're also on treatment the odds of transmission are incredibly low. Wow. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's a good idea still to just go bareback yeah. fucking everyone because the next HIV is around the corner, it's, including possible antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea. I mean, unless you like to party. Yeah. Hey.
0: Sorry if you're <laughs> uptight, Matt, but, uh...
1: But, yeah, I know we've got some epidemiologists who listen to this. If any of you want to write in with a... Like a scenario. If,
0: if this happened now, how would it how would it go down as far yeah, as... Yeah, we we love hearing yeah. from
1: our scientist listeners with their... Uh, uh, with facts, actual facts and information. Um, also, two hundred fifty. So, like, he's still below
0: Wilt Chamberlain's rate. I feel like, as far as partners per day. Yeah, what, so I think so he what averaged. He? I think Wilt said fifteen thousand, and that was oh, over he said, like he said ten thousand. Ten thousand is okay. the number, but it was over like fifteen years, so it still it was more than one a day. Was Wilt yeah. Chamberlain was the average a basketball
1: guy? <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: the super tall. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then he. I think I it was just a memoir he put out like twenty years ago that had
2: if Wilt Chamberlain had sex with 10,000 people, I'm fairly sure it's okay to say Wilt Chamberlain was the fucking guy who also played basketball.
1: (laughs) That becomes his (laughs) predominant moniker now. (laughs) Oh, the sex guy who dabbled in basketball. (laughs) Between
0: between fuck sessions, he would sometimes throw a ball into a hoop. Uh, Actually, 20,000, according to Wikipedia. Jesus. (laughs) 20,000.
1: Over how many years?
0: Um, I, I'm not sure what, let's see when did the book come out uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure either way I mean if that, if you live 100 years I mean, and you have 20,000 20, partners that's still uh 200 years that's uh, still one a day for 100 years gets you to just gets you, let, let, you let, let, let's say let's say, let's, let's
1: say 50 years of sexual activity yeah yeah uh, which he
2: died decently young so it wouldn't even be 50 years no way
1: oh shit it's right he died in the 90s wow.
2: Yeah, I mean he wasn't was, he wasn't like wildly
1: young But he wasn't an 63, old man
0: Yeah not that old uh, Okay so 63 years so, um, so
1: you say Well 63 years But also He didn't start off When he was one Let's just so say he
0: did though uh, Even if he so, did so 60, let's, 45 let, years let's, 45 let's be generous Let's say
1: he started At age 10 so damn
0: okay so 53 years puts us at um 377 a year so over one a day from age 10 on <laughs> my math was way off earlier sorry as so, yeah.
2: being and and that's assuming he's the most baller 11 year old
0: Just like, there's no fallow period hey like, from the get-go every day more than one a day 377 yeah. a year for 53 years
2: I uh, mean, did Will man. throw
1: like crazy sex parties, and he was like, "I'm counting all of you." <laughs> like, well, I would say, yeah. There's gotta be, there's gotta be some orgies in there. Like, yeah. there's gotta be some group sessions.
0: Well, yeah, that's what he talked about in interviews. Like, they're like, "How did you come up with that number?" Obviously, you weren't counting. He like, "No, I just thought about the average night. It would be like three different women, and then that, but that wasn't every night, but that was most nights or something." Jeez. So, Yeah.
1: So yeah, if he always had like three or four women on the go together, that works. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, if what's any... your uh, what's your workout regimen sex <laughs> keeps me in shape if any of our listeners can beat that rate uh, email us in at probably at gmail.com <laughs> and remember to mark your envelopes sex uh, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll post a link to Wilt's uh, story on our website on dot where you can also find our donation button oh yeah which people have been very generous with This has some monthly donations um, thank you so much for the monthly donations from Peter Lipsy uh Leanne Magia Murphy Shane, uh uh Drew Chapman, Matthew Arnold, Pandora Young, uh Ben Marriott, Brooks Gilmore, Stephen Edmonds, Keith Statenfield, uh James Casson Tony Johansson, Stuart Holding, and then thank you very much, Emma Wilton. And thank you very, very much, Rosalie Simonich, who also came to the show in San Francisco. Good to meet you, Rosalie. And thank you an extraordinary amount, uh, Linda Moulton, that is extremely generous of you. But thank you, everyone who's donated. You help us keep this thing going. We I mean, really yeah, cool also to had a,
0: a, a one-off donation from Sam Runyon, who said he loves the show and listens as often as he can at work. Thank you, Sam.
1: Cool. So thank you very much, Ollie. Uh, the other way you can help us financially is by shopping on Amazon using our link first. If you are buying anything on Amazon, go through our link, and it costs you no extra, and we get a kickback, uh, and it really helps us out. So that's really cool too, but we really love it when people donate. That's really lovely of you. Uh, and the other way, if you're not able to donate and you're not shopping on Amazon, the other way you can really support us is by spreading the word. Uh, I know a lot of you do that. You tell people to listen. Uh, tw- you tweet on Facebook and that kind of thing, and that's really cool. So thank you, everyone. And writing nice things about us on iTunes and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing, if you're not already a subscriber, yeah. helps boost our ratings. Do um, we have time for one more story? Uh, it's, up
0: to, it's up to Grant
1: grant has got uh, a barbecue to get to. I do to. have a barbecue, but he's, to get to. That he's that hosting. It is
0: actually at That's my house, right now.
2: so I do feel weird <laughs> about showing
1: up late to my own barbecue. <laughs> it's not uh, specifically your birthday barbecue, but at the same time, we, yes, we probably should round this up. Probably should. <laughs> we probably should. We'll save a couple of the stories for next week.
0: Yeah, we got through a good number. We got through yeah. some farts. We got through
1: some. We got through some great stories. We got through yeah. HIV. We got through third hominid DNA.
0: Yeah, thing I'm, I'm, I want to read more about it. I'm proud that of us. One. I don't know if you guys yeah. are, but I'm Nightmare pretty, machines? I'm
1: proud. Yeah. It's not all farts on this show. It's,
0: it's, it's, sometimes it's, it's nightmare it's machines. It's below 20% farts. Also,
2: uh, um, will they add surgery farts to the nightmare machine?
0: <laughs> <Because> <laughs> Thank you. That's the question. <laughs> this is another thing
2: now to an, be, Now another nightmare
1: of mine. <laughs> just yet another thing to be scared about <laughs> yeah. when you're going under. Yeah.
0: I just can't believe it didn't happen to an uncle. That's all I <laughs> yeah. can't believe. Like, how was <laughs> yeah. it not... Okay, well, uh, Grant, do uh, do you have any shows coming up? Anything you want to let the listeners know about?
1: Yeah, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Uh, people can uh, find me at com, L-Y-O-N, or
2: on the social media. Um, I've got, like, different um, series. I sold a series to uh, Funny or Die, so if you type my name Sweet. into Funny or Die, you can find a thing that I wrote and it's stuff like that. It's already out there. there?
0: Yeah. What's it called?
2: First episode, Action Outreach. Nice. Um, I
0: don't know about that. I will, I will watch it.
2: Yeah, that. um, that's a fun thing.
0: Very cool, man. Congrats. Yeah. Um, Oh, and don't forget, uh, we have, I think, two more new episodes of...
1: How to Build Everything on the Science Channel.
0: Yeah, and they're airing at Strange times, so check your listings. I think this one coming up this week is on Thursday at 10, and then the the week after, the last new episode will be on
1: on Monday. Is that right? Uh, I don't know offhand, but... Go
0: to sciencechannel.com and check out How to Build Everything. You might see Matt, you might see me.
1: And you'll definitely see our names in the credits, so give that a look. That's about it that is about it thank thanks you for very having much me for all the thank you for thank joining us thank you Grant
0: us. yeah it was fun
1: probably science at gmail.com uh, at probably science facebook slash probably science and we can find us individually at Matt Kirshen and at Andy T. Wood yeah. also at Jesse Case and listen to Jesse versus Cancer uh, that is everything thank you so much thank you Grant thank you
0: happy barbecuing Don't forget to order your Curiosity Box by Vsauce by visiting curiositybox.com slash probably science. It's full of awesome, geeky science toys and gear. Proceeds go to benefit Alzheimer's research. You get a free Vsauce beanie and you help support the show. Check it out, curiositybox.com slash probably science. Thanks.